0: This is Jay Shapiro, and welcome to the 42 podcast from This Is 42. This is the first episode of this podcast, and it is a recording of a live event from the now infamous hashtag feminist conversation, which was a conversation between uh, Christina Hoff Summers and Roxanne Gay, which took place live on stage. This one is from the Sydney Town Hall, which took place on March 29th. So this is the full conversation. Enjoy. Enjoy. <coughs> I know what you're thinking. What is this penis doing on stage? <laughs> My name is Desha Miller, I'm the founder of This Is 42, and also thinking, I'm also a filmmaker. That doesn't really answer your question. Let me tell you a story. I've been organizing events like this around Australia and New Zealand for well over a decade, and we always put a lot of thought behind these events, and we always think ahead who's going to host these events. And we normally have a, quite a list. So when the time came, I put the word out. I sent out an email to a well-known journalist. It took her 10 minutes. She responded saying, no, thanks. Unusual. Sent another email to another journalist. Now she took half an hour. She came back saying, I would like to politely decline. I re- reached out to a few more people. One of them did the polite thing and said, hey, I'm really busy right now. I'll get back to you. I'm still waiting. And the next person didn't respond. And the next person. You can see what's happening. For some reason, no self-proclaimed feminists wanted to host this event. Actually, nobody wanted to host this event. So, as an immigrant, I'm doing the job that nobody wants to do. I'll be the first to admit, I do not have an encyclopedic knowledge of feminism, the movement, the history, but I am a curious mind. I like to learn, and I am hoping I can take you all on a journey of learning through this conversation today. See, for thousands of thousands of years, the Gadigal people of the Euro nation have had respectful, complex conversation on this land. So with their blessing and your blessing, I would like to facilitate a respectful conversation. Does that sound good? Okay. So please uh, help me welcome our first guest. She's an award-winning American author, a philosopher, a university professor, and a scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. Please give a warm welcome to Christina Hoff Summers. Hello. Hello. She's a New York Times best-selling author, also a professor, a cultural critic, and you all know uh, also as a Twitter aficionado, <laughs> Sydney. Please give a warm welcome and let her know we appreciate her being here today with us, Roxanne Gay. I think it's fair to say, Roxanne, you have a few fans.
1: I do, I do indeed. Thank you for coming out, Sydney.
0: So, first and foremost, thank you so much for coming all the way over here to have this conversation. Um, so this all started uh, about a, uh, probably about eight months ago. I was having a conversation with a group of people about geopolitics and random stuff, and somehow feminism came up, and I mentioned I'm a feminist and the energy in the room changed. Something I've said has just startled everybody. See, I understand the dictionary definition of the word and the meaning of feminism, but somehow the societal meaning may have changed and I didn't get the memo. So, I also looked up that in the US and the UK, polling data suggests that only one in five young women identify themselves as feminists. So, the obvious question, Roxanne, I want to start off with you. Um, How do you define feminism? Uh, Is it just equality or something broader and more subversive? And how far can one define feminism for themselves?
1: Uh, You know, I get asked that question a lot and I no longer answer that question because
0: it's 2019,
1: (laughs) you know, it's 2019 and if you don't know what feminism is at this point, you are being willfully ignorant and you're not interested, but the reality is that this very basic idea that women and men are equal and that we need to consider the ways in which women need to be, need to have their concerns addressed is a very real one. And unfortunately, people don't take it seriously. And they say, oh, we don't need feminism because things are fine, at least in the Western world, as if mediocrity is an acceptable thing for women. Uh, and I disagree. And so people are really hesitant to consider themselves feminists because there's such a stigma around it that if you're a feminist, you're a troublemaker or you are an unpleasant person, you're angry and you're man-hating, which are, you know, these are all entirely reasonable ways to be. So...
0: I'm <laughs> just like, what's the problem here? Uh, you know, there's a lot going on. Christina, is your feminism Roxanne's feminism? (laughs) Uh,
2: That remains to be. (laughs) Um, As a woman of a certain age, um, age age-enhanced, actually, you.gov does a poll every other year and asks people, are you a feminist? And it's a fairly low number. About 25, sometimes 30% will say yes, and the rest do not accept the designation. This can be very frustrating in feminists because if you ask the same people, do you believe in equality of the sexes, then you get you know, high 90s saying yes. So these pollsters actually asked, why don't you identify as a feminist? And the number two answers given were that um, feminists today are too extreme or th- that today's feminism doesn't represent the women's movement at its best. And I can see why a lot of people get that idea. I think that there is an, ex- I think there are many kinds of feminism. I've always been an equity, equality feminist, but I think in, particularly on social media and in the media in general, you do get a kind of extreme version that's just alienating to a lot of women. And it might be fun for those who are ferocious and angry, and but. You're leaving a lot of women behind that could be part of the movement.
0: Okay, so building up on that, um, uh, Roxanne, what rights are excluded from women in, in the West in 2019?
1: Well, you know, I think there are no rights you can point to and say, oh, women don't have access to that. But the reality is that women still deal with the gender wage gap, and we deal with all kinds of misogyny. We still have reproductive freedom on the table. We still have to fight for the right to have access to affordable birth control. Men don't deal with these issues at all, and it's incredibly frustrating. We also have this prevalence of sexual violence and domestic violence, and so there are lots of issues that women continue to face, and until we look at the issues and find real solutions for them beyond saying things are so much better, we're gonna have a lot of problems because things are better, and it's important to acknowledge that, but that's not really saying much considering
0: where we came from. All right, moving on, I wanna talk about something a bit different. Christine, I wanna ask you this question. Uh, This is from Madonna's 1989 video, Like a Prayer. Uh, It famously uh, features a burning cross, Black Jesus, and it led uh, the Pope to ban her from performing in Italy. My question is, in, in today's world, if a female musician were to do something as provocative as that, but instead of using Christianity, she used any other religion, do you think she will be champion like Madonna? Or do you think she would be considered uh, to be potentially a bigot or being in- culturally insensitive?
2: Oh, well, are you saying that if she, like, burnt a hijab or something? Or-
0: Oh, well, it could be any other religion. I mean, you know, that is obviously a religion. Yeah. I'm talking about outside um, of Christianity because it's.
2: I don't know. I mean, I, I, there's people are doing everything all the time, and there there will be, a, you know, some irate people on Twitter who will, you know, protest. But I think we more or less are living in a fairly laissez-faire society, and when it comes to sexuality or when it comes to protest. Um, now, if we do know that comedians in the United States, for example, uh, and in France, you can make fun of Christianity all you want, but you know there was the the bombing in Paris of the comedic magazine, the Charlie Hebdo, because they made fun of, of the Prophet Muhammad. So there, there's a d- different standard there.
0: Um, Roxanne, would you like to add to that?
1: You know, I think. Again, you have to be a little more nuanced in that. Charlie Abdo was bombed for a lot of reasons, and I don't think it was simply because they chose Islam as their target. The thing is that Christianity in general has been the oppressor, not the oppressed. And so it's punching up when you make fun of Christianity because it is so dominant throughout the world. When you are making fun of Islam and looking at a lot of the rhetoric where people equate a few extremists with billions of people in the world who are faithful and peaceful practicing Muslims, then you have a very different story and that's more punching down. And the kinds of extremists that carried out the terrorist attack against Charlie Hebdo, they would have picked any reason for doing so because they were extremists and it wasn't necessarily about Islam as much as it was about a violent ideology.
2: Well, what, what, where are the fatwas, you know, coming from Christians? I mean, this was, there was a fatwa on Salman Rushdie that came from the, from Iran. That was, I mean, they were, it came from the leader. So I don't think that's incidental. I think that there is uh, more in, intolerance coming from, the, the, from Islam threatening comedians, threatening artists, it's different.
0: Okay, we're talking about minorities here, so I want to understand a terminology that I personally don't really understand. So Roxanne, um, help me understand intersectionality better. What exactly is intersectionality?
1: Well, intersectionality is a way of thinking about feminism in that we're not just women, we contain other identities. And we have to consider the whole of a person's identity when we're thinking about how we help them achieve equality and equity. And so it's not just gender, it's sexuality, class, ability, race, ethnicity, uh, religion, um, any number of factors. And the reality is that not all women are treated equal, and intersectionality helps us to address those inequalities within our gender.
0: Christina, taking on from there, do you think if we do not acknowledge intersectionality, we will miss or we might miss the minorities and uh, their needs be, uh, in the West?
2: Yes, well, intersectionality at the heart of that theory is an, a very, you know, a fundamental insight, which was, it, the theory has been around for a long time, but it was given the name by Kimberly Crenshaw at the time, a young law professor at UCLA, and she was looking at how uh, black women could get sort of lost at the intersection of race... And, and gender, and there were civil rights laws that applied to, to you based on your race, there were gender laws that on your sex, but what happens to African-American women? And she found that that complicated identity rendered them vulnerable to mistreatment and humiliations and that were unique to their situation. Now, over the years, this has become a very active area of scholarship. And there was a conference a few years ago, and they tried to get together and decide what it means, and is it a theory, is it a prism? And There are a lot of arguments. So we have yet to see exactly what will survive the criticism and what this theory will become. That just happens to a lot of things in the academy. That's nothing new. What is new? is that a very radical, kind of hardline version of this theory was fast-tracked into the culture. And suddenly you have you know, young people thinking that we have to divide everyone and look at everyone in terms of their where they are on what, I saw one textbook on intersectionality referred to the United States as a matrix of oppression, and everyone, there was a sort of wheel, an axie, and you could see you know, where you stood, and it was an elaborate, almost a conspiracy theory about the world where there were people on top and there were people on the bottom, and you had special privileges based on your location, except, that could be true, except that the, the categories were so broad, so it was like white males were on the campus you know, sort of Thought to be the most culpable and caring unearned privilege. Well, that covers a lot of people. In fact, you know, and some of them have privilege, some might not. You have to look at the details, and somehow the intersectionality never applied to them. Meantime, they kind of attach it to a, a sort of Marxist analysis of society. So it's suddenly to be intersectional in this radical theory, you have to want to overthrow uh, capitalism and the free market, you know? And they're very vague about what they're going to replace it with. <laughs> Capitalism is just another word for economic freedom. If you have an economic freedom...
0: <laughs> I think there's a few people that have another opinion. <laughs> There's so many places we can go with that, so I'm gonna go back to something we just spoke earlier, which is about minorities building up from the intersectionality. I'm gonna start off with you, Christina, and then go to Roxanne. Do feminists in the West have an obligation to do more to help women in countries that they are oppressed, say for example, a country like Saudi?
2: Well, I think so, absolutely. I think that should be one of the the primary focuses of contemporary feminism. There was an extraordinary event. A young Saudi woman had a very brutal father and brother, and they'd beaten her up. She wanted to have short hair. She wanted to be young and modern. You know, she's educated, and she couldn't stand the constraints and fearful of her family, and so she managed to escape. And she was at the the Bangkok airport on her way to Australia when the. Um, It was discovered her, the Saudi government had told the Thai officials to hold her there, and her father and brother were on the way to pick her up. And she was in a hotel room, thinking of committing suicide. But instead, she took out her iPhone, she went on Twitter, and she told the world about her her situation. And the world listened, and suddenly women's rights groups found out about it. And they helped her, and she's now a free woman in Canada. <laughs> it, they were able to make that happen quickly. And it seems to me that we, you know, just last week, we found out that this wonderful human rights lawyer in Iran, she has been, uh, she defends women who are forced to veil. They have forced veiling. I mean, veiling is fine if you choose to do so, but if I were forced to do that. There are women that protest all the time in Iran. And this lawyer, Nassim Saduque, defends them. She was just sentenced to 37 years in prison and uh, 140 lashes. Lashes. I I mean, she has children. She's just a wonderful brilliant scholar and they're so do I think we should be forming common cause I go to international human rights conferences and I meet these women they're asking they're asking the world for help we should be there for them
0: what do you think of, <laughs> Roxanne what do you think of uh, do, do you think feminists in the west have an obligation to do more to help
1: Yes, I think that we have an obligation to address oppression wherever it lives, whether it's in the United States or Australia or Saudi Arabia or Iran. And the reality is that it does exist in all of these places to different degrees. But I also think that it would be really presumptuous of me as a feminist to think that I would know best what's best for Saudi Arabian women. Um who have been very effective at organizing. We saw this, especially in recent years, as they fought for the right to drive. And you know, from a Western perspective, you think, my goodness, you're still fighting for the right to do this very basic thing and to have this very basic amount of independence. But I don't know that they need exter- external intervention. What they need is our support materially, probably financially, and certainly in terms of highlighting voices in those communities who are leading these movements to create change. So I think that support can come in a lot of different ways, but I don't think it needs to come in an interventionist way because I don't think that we know better than what those communities
0: need for themselves. I want to show you a video that I've found. This is a recent video. This is from Indonesia. Today, we're at one of their routine street rates. A checkpoint is set up and within minutes, dozens of women are being pulled over. The female Sharia officers interrogate the women about their clothing.
3: People are looking at you. This sort of thing causes
0: crime. These girls were on their way to school. Their bodies are covered head to toe. But their pants are too tight, and their hijabs too revealing. If her
3: top were longer, it would be okay. We are detaining her. It did happen occasionally in
4: the past,
3: but not as often as it does now. Who wouldn't be pissed off by this? if the man doesn't see anything he won't be aroused it's up to us it's the woman that invited the curves of their body can arouse men's lust
0: Captain those girls told me they're just 15 are they not too young to be punished she could be 15 she could be 9 once she
3: starts menstruating Sharia law applies to her For men, it's once they start having
4: wet dreams.
0: Roxanne, picking up from where you you left off, by any standard, doesn't that seem like oppression?
1: (laughs) It does seem like oppression, but I think it's really manipulative to show a video like that to sort of say, look at this culture and their backwards ways. when we are dealing with the very same issues in the Western world, only it's not encoded by Sharia law. Um, is that oppressive? Of course it's oppressive. I mean, that's like asking if the sun shines. Yeah, like, yeah, it shines. It, it's, I think that's not a super productive question. Um,
2: Can I? Can sure. I go to international women's conferences in New York City where they bring the leaders from the women's groups, the feminists, in Indonesia and in Egypt, from Ghana, Nigeria, Cambodia, and it's exciting because you're sort of meeting the like the feminist foremothers that we would see, the Sojourner Truth of that society, or the Elizabeth Cady Stanton. You meet them, and they are the bravest women in the world, the feminist foremothers in this country, they face imprisonment and lashing and so forth, we talked about, and they ask for our help, and here's a way we could help. For example, Saudi men now have the ability, thanks to Apple and uh, Google, I guess, they can download an app and track where their wives and daughters are, and they get an alert if she tries to cross the border. Now, some senators and congressmen in the United States found out about this and have asked Apple to take away this capacity, and so far they haven't. This is, this is the sort of thing that the uh, Saudi, I know the Saudi women are asking us to do something about, so I agree with you that we're not going to be lady bountiful and go, oh, well, you know, we'll liberate you. No, no, let's just listen to the feminist leaders and help them in the ways they're asking.
0: From religion, I want to talk about the Me Too movement. Christina, do you think the Me Too movement has gone too far? Because you've alluded to that in a few interviews. and uh, Or has the movement been a turning point for feminism globally?
2: Well, I'm, I still have hopes for this movement because I think that we have reached a, a state where there was clearly a need to bring the standards of, you know, of the workplace and life in general. Just, we needed to renegotiate the contract between men and women and bring it up to 21st century standards of equality and mutuality and respect. However, from the beginning, there was a mix of, you know, just common sense and bringing people together as opposed to those who wanted to use it sort of to women telling men just, you know, how toxic they are. Most men are toxic. Some are, but many, many men support the Me Too movement, and I think that it's something that men and women have to do together. It's not you know a zero-sum game like we put them down and we go up. No, our fates are connected. You can't have this two rival teams. And now it's men's turn to shut up. Like Matt Damon was defending the Me Too movement. He you know couldn't have been more supportive, but he he did say he thought there should be uh, some fairness in how much men are punished, and he thought punishment should be proportional to the crime, and so he said, you know, an Al Franken isn't equal to uh, Harvey Weinstein. Weinstein. And then the next, you know, which was completely reasonable (laughs) to me and to most people, but the next day there were like 20,000 MeTooers, you know, radicals who'd signed a petition demanding he be erased from his next film, and many drivers said, it's just time for you to be quiet, you know, and listen. And then he, he, he apologized, you know. I mean, Matt Damon can take care of himself, but think of the most men would have felt like they were just being told to shut up. To tell men, that's not feminism, that's bullying. Feminism should be about men and women speaking to each other as equals. You don't replace male chauvinism with female chauvinism.
0: Rox- Roxanne, <clears throat> would, you li- would you like to comment on that?
1: I don't think telling men to stop talking and listen to women is chauvinism. Uh, I think that... You know, I think that we're in the very beginning of Me Too, even though we're now about a year and a half in, and this initial thrust has been about women bringing voice to the very real issues they've faced in the workplace, and their personal lives, and you know, we men have plenty of platforms, like this idea that we need to cry for men or worry that they're being silenced somehow simply because women are speaking is not true. They're going to be okay. And it's really interesting that when women achieve equality, men perceive it as oppression and people say, oh you know, we're taking something away from them, but that's never what feminism has been about. It's not about taking anything away from men. It's about giving women the same privileges that men have. And one of those privileges is bodily autonomy and being able to go to work without being sexually harassed and being able to walk down the street without being catcalled. And so when someone like Matt Damon, a multimillionaire who is very famous, (laughs) says you know, oh, um, there should be some fairness. Of course there should be some fairness. But the backlash was because people are so tired of bending over backwards to accommodate the male ego. And there's something to be said for men just taking a step back for a few years and just being a little quiet. It's okay, we'll still make progress. They will not be left behind in some material form or fashion. They'll just listen and learn the same way that we're supposed to listen to women leaders in other countries think about feminism. I think men would do really well to listen to what women have to say about what we see as equity in the workplace and what we see as what should happen next in terms of Me Too.
0: Roxanne, on that same point, what do you think the movement can do to continue to be effective and what dangers are ahead for the movement? Well, you know, the, the
1: biggest danger facing me too is exhaustion and people just saying, oh, I can't believe we're still talking about this. Uh, you know, like it's been a whole year and a half. <laughs> Come on, ladies. You've only been dealing with our bullshit for hundreds of years. You know, I think what we need to do now is move beyond testimony, which is not to say that people should stop sharing their stories of things that they've experienced, but what do we do with this information and how do we prevent it from happening again? How do we create a better world, which is a huge question. How do we encourage or demand that the justice system respond adequately to these kinds of things? How do we create systems where women can come forward in their workplace without repercussion and without fear of retaliation or of losing their jobs? Because as many people as have come forward, there are a great many people who are silenced. And one of the key things that we've seen in the Me Too movement is that it's the most privileged among us who have come forward because we can afford to do so and there are plenty of women who can't afford to do so. There's a really great book called All in a Day's Work, and it talks about working-class women who are dealing with sexual harassment and have very little recourse. And so these are the kinds of things that we have to think about. How do we support the most vulnerable among us, and how do we create a system of justice that actually can adequately respond to people who come forward? If we don't start coming up with solutions, we're just going to keep talking and talking and talking, and we have to do something more productive than that, even though I do think that there was a need for what
0: has taken place over the past year and a half. Uh, I want to bring up a tweet you put out. This is about Aziz Ansari, and this goes to your point. Um, This says... um, why is Aziz Ansari being lumped in with Louis C.K. and Matt Lauer? God, I wish more people did journalism and writing on hashtag care, which leads to the point that you agree that not all. Matt w- <laughs> 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 Sorry, that's Matt
2: Damon's <laughs> point. Sorry.
0: And I agree th- with there you. Are same degree, uh, th- there are some degrees o- o- of crime. So I think journalists have a, quite an important role to play. I think that's one of the points you, you make here.
1: Well, definitely. The media is lazy, and oftentimes they find a few talking points, oftentimes that are inaccurate, and they regurgitate them for years on end, and they flatten issues. And so what Aziz Ansari did versus what Louis C.K. did versus Matt Lauer, Hyrie Weinstein, and so on, these are things that exist along a spectrum. And... Right now, the media continues to talk about these things as if they're all at the same point on the spectrum, and such is not the case. And I think that we need to have enough of a sense of ethics to differentiate and to say, yeah, it's all bad. It is all bad, but what Aziz Ansari did is not a crime versus what Harvey Weinstein did, which was absolutely a crime. And... How do we create space to acknowledge that they're both bad while also acknowledging the differences? And the press is just so eager to be first and to be the most condemning that they don't take a step back and consider any of these stories with nuance. And then there are people who are just like, oh, see, look at these feminists. They're so angry. All that guy did was have a bad date. And it's a little more complicated than that. It really is, because... In the Aziz Ansari story, which was poorly sourced, poorly written, and deeply problematic, you could still see strains of a lack of awareness about enthusiastic consent, for example. And we can talk about that.
0: Aziz Ansari, as a successful comedian, he will be fine at at the end of this. But somebody who's not at the same social level, how would excluding people like, you know, your Bill Cosby's and Harvey Weinstein's, how would a man who's been accused of something like this, redeem themselves, should that be part of the conversation as well? Uh, Yes, redemption should be part
1: of the conversation, but I don't know that we should be, we, we always rush to redemption before there's any reconciliation. Everyone's like, oh, shouldn't they come back? Like Louis C.K., when he started doing comedy again, people were like, oh, it's been a long year. And I'm like, really? <laughs> He's a millionaire. He was fine. I fucking assure you, he was fine. Um, but I think that in terms of redemption, it's not necessarily up to us as members of the public to determine what that should be. I think it's up to the people who have been harmed by those people's actions that should determine what his, that path to redemption should look like. Uh, And I just think it's a question of timing. Oftentimes, it's just way too soon, but who knows? Clearly, these days, everything is just Um, terrible.
0: (laughs) Roxanne, um, uh, I'm gonna ask you one more question, and I'll, I'll come to you, Christina. You've written a lot about trauma. I think one of the reasons that people really relate to you is it's deeply personal. A secondary hashtag that came out of the Me Too movement is believe all women and there's been some criticism that it leads to false accusation, breed chaos and mob justice, claims innocent victims undermine social trust and teaches us to doubt the evidence of our own experience. How would you respond to a claim like that? (laughs) Um, You know,
1: in general, I do believe that we should, as a baseline, believe all women. This doesn't mean that we don't vet stories and that we don't seek more, but uh, I think we have to trust that women in general, and men, because men also suffer from sexual assault, there's no reason to lie about this. It's like the worst possible thing. It's a really shitty experience. And so I, I just don't think we need to have this degree of panic about oh, my God, but what about the one innocent man? When Again, we're prioritizing these like needs of men. Nobody should be falsely accused of sexual assault, and anyone who does that, I, I just think, what is your problem? Clearly, they have something seriously wrong going on, and we should condemn it roundly. But I, I think that we oftentimes disbelieve women as a default. So she's lying until we can prove that she's telling the truth. And... That's dangerous, Um, and I think why don't we worry about the women who are not believed as much as we worry about
0: the men who might be falsely accused. Like, I think we have to, you would be very familiar with that claim because I picked that claim from your 2014 Times article titled, rape culture is a panic where paranoia, censorship and false accusations flourish, which seem to go against what Roxanne's saying. May I make a philosophical argument that believe all women is merely a desperate cry to give a voice to women who have not had a voice for centuries rather than literally believing all women.
2: Yes, and I certainly think that any person who comes and the claims a violation should be treated with respect and care, but nobody has a right to be believed in, without, you know, this is your own friend or something, but someone who wants you to punish someone, wants the state to take action. You have to have due process. You have to go through a process. It's not perfect, but it's the best we have. And it's, it's been in our s- system. It's been a principle of just sort of civilization going back to the Magna Carta that... You have some protection of, of being able to give your side of the story when you're accused. It's it's a horrible thing to be harassed and, and and violated. Of course, but it's also a horrible thing to be falsely accused. I have heard so many stories now because I write about this, and and it's sort of it's psychologically annihilating for these people. Uh, they lose everything that you get accused and you can't and, and I. Just last week was speaking to a young man who's a journalist who became a non-person because someone Wrote a story he says it's not true and it's nothing that could ever go to a court of law But it made him seem like he could be you know that he lost his job. He lost friends We have to be careful. We have to be we have to be protective of everyone and have a system that There are ways to improve it, but up till now what's happening is people are so desperate to protect the women, mostly women, is that they are making secret lists and you get anonymous informants, you know, circulating lists. And there have been innocent people on those lists who find it impossible to defend themselves. And, you know, we have a bad history with black lists, going back in the, in the United States to McCarthyism, calling someone a communist. You have to have evidence. You can't have an anonymous informants that can have the power to take someone down.
0: It's, um, so, um, we, <laughs> in the same article, you talk about rap hysteria and you equate what's happening now to the child abduction hysteria in the 80s. Um, child which,
2: daycare centers.
0: Right. Um, but um, is that a fair comparison?
2: I think that on uh, college campuses, we now have almost a contagion of hysteria. And these are places, you know, Swarthmore College or Wesleyan, you know, the most places where young women are probably the most empowered, the most privileged, and the safest of any women on earth. Yet these young women, they're getting this idea that the young men at Swarthmore, Wesleyan, you know, are predators and they, and they, Uh, have this very simple sort of view of the world about this that they live and inhabit this culture where they feel as oppressed. I mean they identify with the handmaid's tale and they think they're living in the equivalent of a handmaid's tale. To me it is madness and it's a kind of um, a moral panic. I think we are in the middle of a moral panic around sexuality and it doesn't solve problems. There is a real problem of sexual harassment and sexual assault on campus. It is a problem. It's not an epidemic. It's not threatening. You know, the, but what they've done is turned it into an all this all-encompassing threat. Um. And- and they're not not—they're not attending to the problem.
0: I want to go to Roxanne, but you mentioned something, it's not an epidemic. So I've heard uh, a fair few interviews, you talk about the, the data set of one in four, one in five women being sexually assaulted or raped. It's not true, and you refer to a data set where it shows it's one in 52, which is relevant to the American university sector. So I looked up, there's roughly about 21 million students in American universities. If you were to go by the one in 52 number, That's over 400,000 serious sexual assaults and rapes. That sounds like an epidemic. Um,
2: You have to look, they've done a study of, the uh, Bureau of Justice Statistics looked at um, American universities and pulled out the data and it was, they asked very good questions, they had uh, a huge sample of people. They were personal interviews. It was. It was. They set the gold standard for research. They found that yes, I said it's a serious problem. But they, they were looking at 18 to 24 year olds, uh, males and females on campus, and they found that about it's less than one percent. But in a population of you know I don't know at that age group there's. Uh, six million young women that age. So it's a lot. It's a big number. There's no question that every school, and that includes rape and sexual assault. And you know they cover if someone grabs you or gropes you. It covers the gamut. So of course we need reasonable policies, and we need to be attending. But what this one and four would mean? That would mean if, and that's all the students here. One and four. One and five. That would mean that the college campus is more dangerous than the war-torn Congo. It would mean that th- these campuses are facing an epidemic of predation that's uh, like a Bosnian rape camp or something. I mean,
1: that's
0: I think uh, I think we should bring in Roxanne at this moment. <laughs> Roxanne, you have a lot <laughs> you're thinking right now.
1: I think that's It's so terrible to compare that statistic to the Congo or a Bosnian war camp because that's not what anyone's saying.
2: It's one in in, four.
1: One in four women have been sexually assaulted and that is a container that includes rape and other forms of harassment and assault. So that is fairly accurate. It's not rape itself, which is probably closer to the one in 52. It's a range of experiences that fall under this umbrella. And I think it's important to listen to that statistic because women are feeling unsafe because they are unsafe. It's not a moral panic. We're not having a moral panic in any way. I was at Swarthmore four weeks ago and the women there were fine. They were walking around being young students. Uh, I teach on a college campus and This doesn't come up in the way that the media exploits it, but on every single campus that I go to, including the one where I teach, people are deeply concerned about the prevalence of sexual assault, and even more importantly, the reluctance of administrations to actually uh, deal with the problem. Oftentimes, we're seeing institutions that let these rapists stay in school, so we have young women who are going to classes with their rapists, and we see that They discourage students from contacting local police because they want their campus police, who are beholden to the institution more than to the greater good, adjudicating these issues. And so there are some really big problems that are happening on college campuses. And rather than to dismiss it as moral panic or to suggest that women are pretending or imagining this as if it's some sort of terrible movie, I think we should really listen to what's happening on college campuses and take it more seriously because there's a difference. And I don't think that there's a single girl or young woman on a college campus who would say that she believes she's living in the Handmaid's Tale. But I do think that there are a lot of women who are thinking we're about 10 years away. Can
2: I just say one thing?
0: Okay, point. quickly because we're I mean, running quickly. out of time. I didn't realize. What
2: worries me the most is that to the extent that we have a, a serious problem, which no one here is denying, there's actually a, a good study, it was in the New England Journal of Medicine, about how you could cut the numbers and how you could get it down of just untoward behavior and too much, you know. Uh, and what they found was that uh, girls are most vulnerable freshman year and it is it has to do with sort of uh, binge drinking and drunken parties and fraternities and all the things you could, all the things. So, they found, they found they could cut the numbers substantially, and this was peer-reviewed, careful research, and the young women would take a course, and they would learn uh, about... Now, exactly,
0: um,
2: everyone's, every...
0: Uh, okay, okay, Let, let's be civil here.
2: Showing somebody how not to be a victim is not victimizing them.
1: Um, but surely we could have a class that shows young men how not to victimize.
2: Uh, you know what? You know what? Um, a young man, a young man, you have to...
1: Constantly, what we do when we talk about rape prevention is tell young women what not to do, where not to walk, how to walk down the street, carry mace, carry your keys in your hands like a claw. Don't go out at night. Don't drink too much. Don't leave your drink unattended while you go to the bathroom. Like really, all of these problems could be solved by men learning to not rape. It. it, it. There are
2: predators out there. It's a small percentage, but there are one 1% of the population is so is psychopathic. Three or four percent sociopathic. There are dangerous predators, and you must protect yourself. Teaching someone, telling a, a someone to look both ways before they cross the street. You don't say, oh, don't tell them that. Tell drivers not to hit hit them. No, you you do, you do both. You do both. But right now, I think I have to say the reaction of this audience. I've told you there is a way that you, there, you could help bring the numbers down because a lot of it is young people in college, binge drinking. They learn cues about if someone is, just things that apparently they have learned. This helps them to sort of navigate the world and be aware of the dangers. You ha- how can you not teach that to a, 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 ch- a child a, 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 Is going off to college, a young person going off to college, and yet the reaction was many feminist groups did not want to have this training because they didn't fit the agenda. And th- so the agenda apparently is not protection, it's it's forwarding a theory about
0: you okay. know, the I want to move on from this conversation. Roxanne, you voiced your disappointment when one of your favorite publications, New Yorker, decided to invite Steve Bannon, and for anyone who's not sure about Steve Bannon, uh, he was the chairman of Breitbart News, and he was instrumental in getting Donald J. Trump elected. When you were promoting this event, a journalist asked you, if you were against Steve Bannon, how are you for being at this event with somebody who, you categorize as a white supremacist. Do you actually think Christina is a white supremacist?
1: You meant a white wine supremacist. No. (laughs) You know, Dash, when I agreed to do this event, I did not know who Christina was. And I don't say that in a a mean way, it's just the truth. And I, I don't know that she knew who I was, it's okay. Then the Southern Poverty Law Center Emailed me and said, Here's who this person is. And I said, Oh,
5: oh. What did they tell
1: you? (laughs) Um, They talk about a lot of your work um, in terms of male supremacy and some of the other things that you've done over the years. And, you know, the difference between Steve Bannon is that Steve Bannon was in the White House and he was shaping America's political future and he had a direct hand in what was happening today. And so there is a material difference. But, you know, I think we all make mistakes in judgment from time to time.
0: (laughs) Just so uh, we can move on from that question, do you think America and the West in general have a problem with racism?
2: The West in general? Yes. Yes.
0: If someone were to accuse you of a white supremacist, how would you respond to that?
2: Well, first of all, I'm also Jewish, and I think white supremacists have a problem with Jews as well as uh, uh, other races. So um, I would be... It's appalling to me, it, it, that sort of language. I didn't i didn't think you meant it. I thought that the, the, they, they confused you.
1: I don't know. But, no, uh, I wasn't confused. Um, <laughs> it was more... Uh, they That's not... Exactly what I said uh, to the journalist, to be fair to myself. Um, it was that someone who's willing to appear on stage with someone like Milo and to be on radio shows with other white supremacists, like, and then not disavow that, I think that it makes you white supremacist adjacent. And that's certainly something that concerns me. I, I think that. When we legitimize people like Milo, when we give these people airtime, we suggest that their viewpoints are worthy of consideration. And, you know, they're not. I just, they're not. They're, and it's not about conservatism. My brother's a Republican. <laughs> True story. I have no problem with conservatives, but I do have a problem with virulent racists who say really crazy and offensive things and then call it entertainment. But then they have hundreds of thousands of followers who take it very seriously and then become radicalized and do dangerous things in the public space. And so I think it's something to be concerned about. And it's definitely something that. Well, can- I'll, I'll just
2: say that, first of all, I do thank you for appearing with me because these days there's so much polarization, people don't talk to one another. I happen to be a fairly a standard, moderate Democrat. Uh, my views are either very liberal on most topics, on feminism, i still, I was a feminist in the, in the, my mother was a feminist, I was a feminist in the 70s, 80s, but I do feel the movement has become extreme. I feel we're becoming polarized, that language, like like white supremacy, it's being inflated to include like, it kind of means like people I don't agree with. And and then guilt by association and collective guilt. I worry that there's that, that you know there's just too much of this in the public sphere. And it may not be this way in Australia, but in the United States, there's so much division and, and real uh, contempt for people on the other side. And especially I feel it coming from the left towards moderates and contempt and almost a sort of dehumanization where people just suddenly see you as evil when you're just human and, you know, and you're willing to learn. But anyway, I am glad that you were willing to have this discussion.
0: To add to the, the positive nature here, I want to end with my last question. Uh, we're going to have a mic here. There's two mics here for the audience questions. Roxanne, what does the future of feminism look like to you?
1: You know, uh, the future of feminism for me is hopefully getting to a place where we don't need to have these conversations, where feminism is a default of humanity, where people absolutely believe in equality and believe in supporting women's choices, and that we have a system, a government, that allows women to make choices without penalizing them. So the future of feminism really is about continuing to advocate for reproductive freedom, continuing to advocate for things like maternity leave, subsidized childcare, um, subsidized health care in the United States, because these are things that we don't have, and women are disproportionately affected by not having it.
0: Christina, what does the future of feminism look like to you? One of the things we
2: know historically, if you look at the women's movement, where it sort of began in the 18th century, and then moving through suffrage and moving through, you know, that was the first wave and the second wave. Women make their greatest advances when conservative and liberal women form a pact and work for the same thing. It happened in the 18th century. You had Hannah Moore and Mary Wollstonecraft. In the 19th century, you had Frances Willard and Elizabeth Cady Stanton and so, and what worries me today is we, we seem only to have a, a, an increasingly radical wing, and so moderate women are called names or not invited to the table, let alone conservative women or libertarian women. My hope is that we ha- we, it becomes more inclusive, more women come to the table, we correct one another's excesses, we learn from one another, and maybe, eventually, we actually have, not so much feminism, but a, a real Humanism, where we join with men to have you know in our activism, and we look well. What are the areas where men uh, need strengthening? Or have you know we know that uh, young women young women have moved ahead of men in college, more far more likely to go to college. Uh, There's a large cohort of young men who is sort of left behind, uh, and this is across ethnic groups and, and racial groups the The men aren't the young men are not doing as well. and just just areas like that where that that should be a concern to anybody with a sense of of justice and and basic fairness. So I'm hoping for humanism and an inclusive women's movement, and I really want to have strong contacts with women in the developing world who are asking for our help.
0: Okay, with that, I'd like to open the questions to the audience. Do you guys have any questions? If so please come up to the mic if you can line up. There's two mics. Yes, please come up to the mic. So far. Yes, please.
5: I want to say a big thank you for both of you, like, I guess, for coming out tonight. Um, my question, I guess, is more to Roxanne. Um, so I come from a background of doing like forensic biology and that kind of thing. And the stuff that we studied at uni was always like um, miscarriages of justice, like looking at the justice system and how has faulted people, but every single thing that they gave us was a white male, mm-hmm. that we could study was a white male. And if you look at the justice system in America, which is obviously what you are used to, or in Australia, which is what a lot of us are focusing on, is that um, actually we have Indigenous deaths in custody, whether yeah. male or female. We have a lot of issues within our judicial system, and you would have the exact same thing there. And my question, I guess, to you is what could us as people um, within this room do to step forward and actually mm-hmm. take a stand and to do something and to help these people who are being uh, prejudiced in the judicial system mm-hmm. and actually help them and to do something and to say that whilst you might be a woman of colour whilst you might be brought up in this legal system what can we do mm-hmm. someone from a forensics background or a legal background or yeah any kind of background from every single person that actually sits in this room tonight, uh-huh. what can we do to take a stand and actually say that there should be equality yes. to in, enact a reform within our judicial system to help people?
1: Yes, that's a great question, and you know, it's one for which I don't have an answer because we're all trying to find those answers, but increasingly what I'm finding is that whenever I think about the problem in its full scope, I just think I'm one person, how can I help? And so I start to look at what can I do in my little life to address inequality in some form or fashion. And so one of the key things that you can do is point out to your professors, for example, because they love this kind of critique, they don't. Uh, They really do, but you want to find ways of, after graduation, introducing suggestions for curriculum that include people beyond the traditional canon. The canon exists for a reason. It's not that we should ignore it, but to suggest that white men are the only people who have anything to say on any given subject is to ignore literature, history, music, art, and frankly, everything, and so that's one key way. Another key way is to take stands. A lot of times people say, Um, I have a racist uncle, but I love him, so I'm going to go hang out with him. And we have to start making these difficult choices in our personal lives as well, and it's not to say that you have to ostracize your family, but you do have to be willing to have the difficult conversations where you press them and ask them, why do you believe what you believe? Why do you act the way you act? And when you hear injustice happening, When you hear people saying racist or misogynist or homophobic or transphobic things, it's not that you wanna be a killjoy all the time, but if we don't start holding ourselves and our friends accountable, how can we expect people to hold our culture accountable? And so it's starting to do that.
3: My name's Alicia. This question is for both of you. Christina, you spoke earlier about educating women on how to avoid being sexually assaulted. My question is, does that then not put implicit blame on the women who haven't done that training?
2: absolutely not absolutely would you been I, w- I would you know a a friend of mine's um, son was in a was beaten up in a bar he was i don't know what happened exactly, but um, it did turn out that he he'd drunk a lot and put himself into you know and we we were sort of angry at him and but felt very sorry for him and you, tell, uh, you want to be protective of people and tell them not to get into crazy, you know, make themselves vulnerable. I don't know what parent would send a child off to university and not just give them g- good advice on how to remain safe. And that, because you, you cannot, you know, there's no program that we have found to eliminate Threat and evil in this world—it exists. We've we, we have brought it not under control by any means, but we're relatively safe in, you know, our societies. Depending on where you go, but at most college campuses, relatively safe. Why not do everything you can to make sure that your daughter, your friend, is making good decisions? And that's—and that's not saying you don't. It would—it would be her fault if something happened but let's just make sure that nothing happens. And there is a study, the New England Journal of Medicine, and several people have urged colleges to do it, but they don't do it. And so it, I feel that people don't get the protection. They, they should, and the wisdom. Teaching someone how not to be a victim is, it's not, vict- it's not blaming them, it's, it's common sense, it's protecting them.
1: You know, this idea that we can teach people how to not be victims is, it's just, I, I believe in common sense. I believe that we have to be realistic about the world that we live in and that we have, you know, we could have some sort of universal curriculum where we teach men not to rape and men will still commit, some men will still commit acts of rape or sexual assault. But when we put the onus on curriculum, what do we do about women who don't go to college? What do we do about children who are sexually assaulted? What do we do about men who are sexually assaulted? It's like trying to catch water with a net. There's no way to catch everyone, and so that's why we need a comprehensive way of looking at this from the perpetrator's point of view because it's easier to reach perpetrators who are smaller in number than it is to reach potential victims, which is almost everyone.
6: Next question. (laughs) Yes. Hello. Um, I think this question goes on from what we've just been talking about. Um, I'd just like to know, this question is directed at you Summers mainly, Um, how do you think it actually would go down if instead of teaching women how not to get raped, we were to teach men? or specifically young men, how to control their sexual urges um, and look at women as human beings and not objects? Like, how do you think they would actually hold themselves accountable for that? Not only on uni campuses, but just, you know, if GPs or something started actually telling young men, this is how you respect a woman. (laughs) And parents followed after that.
2: How do well, you think that would be degraded? I, um, I hope that most parents raise a, a humane child and they, they do not go out, they don't become rapists but what you're suggesting is that you know there's just some way in which we could suddenly organize society and there would not be these, these predators out there. Well, there is, there are evil people, there are mentally disturbed people, there are Uh, sociopathic people. We can't, we've got to be, all of our kids have to be prepared that you face in the world. And what I'm afraid is that, and this is kind of an example, and it's hard, it's hard to explain these things because people have a blind spot, but this is madness that you wouldn't teach young women going off to college about the dangers of And what they should look out for and be careful of because there are predators you have to prepare them no they did not know they did not know okay that was the thing and and here's the thing about this program the young women that were in the program were very grateful they had learned things and the school still had bystander programs they had, you know, all, they, they, it's not that you just do that. I'm telling you, it's just one part of an approach, and you seem not to like it, even though it can reduce victimization. You don't like it, okay?
6: I at a university in America. I'm a dual citizen there, so I'm quite familiar with the situation as it stands in America. And my university, Adelphi University, I will name drop them, had that exact program where they, before my freshman year of college we went through a program to teach women basically how to not be victims and about the dangers of alcohol and drinking too much and all that. And then when I got to the university, now that I've gone through and I've graduated, that didn't help a damn thing. So when I know personally, everyone on campus went through this program, when I know personally at least a dozen women who were raped and or assaulted by one person, who I also knew personally, and knew hundreds of other women who were, again, assaulted and raped on our campus by people from our campus. We went through that exact program that you're talking about, and it sold nothing. So how would you be able to stand behind a program that... Because it's not about the victims knowing that they're victims. We know we're victims. We're taught that from the moment that we're born.
2: You're You're saying that it failed, but they've done, according to the New England Journal of Medicine study, they did controlled studies, and they found that it had an impact. And some schools are using it, and we'll see.
1: But life, it has, it, the thing is, life is not a controlled study. I, there are lots of things that work in controlled studies, but when you put them out into the actual world where there is very little control, you're gonna get different results. They
2: actually compared the young women that had this, uh, the, that had gone through this training, and they compared them with a group that had not had the training, and they were significantly more protected. It's just one part of a solution,
4: but... I will start saying that um, seeing two people with two different views dialogated in such a positive uh, way is very inspiring, so thank you. And I want to start with this. Um, then I want to continue with the female infanticide. So we have, um, uh, I think that uh, Miss Gay uh, talked about the reproductive rights for women, um uh, but I think that uh, in many places in the world, like for example, what happened in China, India, South Korea, reproductive rights without empowering on women, they created more problems than solutions. And the same thing is happening also in Africa, um where a lot of organizations are supplying um this kind of uh, like a ultrasound. Um, sex determination uh, tools and we risk uh, another um, like a holocaust of uh, female fetuses so I my question is how can we uh, solve this problem so how uh, you know uh, how can we provide reproductive rights but without all the implications and is for both of
1: You know, really you're asking, how can we solve the problem of misogyny? I don't know that these two, and we, you know, it's a huge problem. If we knew, we wouldn't be up here, quite frankly. Um, Female infanticide is a real problem in many cultures, and it, it isn't access to reproductive tools that makes female infanticide happen. It's misogyny, and people valuing boys over girls. And, you know, right now in China in particular, they're recognizing what goes wrong, now they have a surplus of men and not enough women in the country, and they're realizing, oh, we made a mistake. And, uh, you know, the best thing that we can do is continue to advocate for why female infanticide is an unacceptable practice, no matter what your culture is, there should be no rule where we're like, oh yeah, go ahead and kill the girls, that's fine, because it's not okay. And there have to be hopefully from the UN, real repercussions for countries that do this because that's the only way people learn is when there are material consequences for these kinds of decisions. And so I think this is one of those places where UN intervention could come in really handy and with also the World Health Health Organization.
0: Christina, do you want to?
2: No, I think that was fine. (laughs) I agree. (laughs) Hi,
3: I'd just like to start by thanking the other questions. I think the questions from the audience have been excellent a lot of the questions tonight have seemed quite shallow and almost
6: disrespectful. But I would love to hear from Roxanne and Christina your reflections on Australia
3: in 2019 after your time here.
2: Oh. Well, uh, I was um, a little concerned. With, uh, this is my second trip, and I was more... Uh, Worried about dangerous animals more than the, more than the dangerous men or women, um, and last night in my I was eating in my hotel restaurant and I looked at uh, I, I couldn't finish my meal and I asked if I could take it back to my room for a container, and um, he looked a little surprised and then he, the waiter came back and he had a long form that I had to fill out. That I would tr- treat, I wouldn't sue them if I got poisoned by the food, and I thought it was going to like make me take my blood pressure, you know. And I, it was like so overwhelmingly um, kind of nanny state, like you, you can't you can't leave this hotel without this this restaurant without signing this form that, you know. And then it was a little lecture, a hectoring little lecture on how to take care of the food. So um, I'm just wondering if. I had a different image of Australia as a sort of rugged and dangerous place and then it seems like now it's become like hyper protective even of my caprese
1: salad, <laughs> so, but that's about all. <laughs> this is my third time in Australia and I've had some very interesting experiences <laughs> with the media here over those five years. Um, this has been definitely the best trip and uh, yeah, it has, um, and certainly the, uh, the scandal of the day with the One Nation party and the guns has been wild. Uh, you know, when an Australian politician tries to get $20 million from the NRA, which is broke, it's just like, man, that's a caper. Uh, but every time I come here, it's really interesting to start to notice the similarities that we have culturally and also the differences. And I, I've definitely continued to notice how segregated Australia is and certainly Sydney and Melbourne um, and Adelaide, which are the three cities I've been to. And also, you see that segregation reflected on television. And you know, we always think that we have so much work to do in the United States, but when it comes to at least representative diversity in media, The United States is light years ahead, and that's the the thing I continue to notice. Um, Just women seem to be dealing with a level of misogyny on the morning shows here that would never fly, and I just, it blows my mind every time, both when I'm on stage, like on morning television here, and also when I watch it, and so, it's interesting to see Australia evolving, because it certainly has even gotten better in the five years I've been here, but also to see just that there's still some work to do. And we see so little conversation about the indigenous populations. And even tonight, when you look at this audience, um, there are not a lot of people of color in this room. And I think part of that is the price point. And uh, part of it is some of the larger segregation that happens, and also perhaps just lack of interest, which I totally understand. Um, But yeah, it's been an interesting visit as always, and Australia, the people of Australia, have always been very kind, and I enjoy coming here.
0: Next question.
3: We've talked a lot and tonight about rape, culture, and sexual violence. We talked a lot about, or um, well, you just mentioned about media in Australia. Um, I'd like to take a step back and maybe ask you, how do we keep having those conversation without almost like exploding the subject?
1: That's a great question. And, you know, part of it is that we have to become the best versions of ourselves, to have these difficult conversations with people with whom we disagree, because I think a lot of us, myself included, innately believe that we're right. And, I mean, I am. But, <laughs> you know, I do think that we have to be open, but the thing is, you know, we see a lot of both sidesisms happening lately, where you gotta hear both sides, but there are certain issues that there are no two sides to. And for me, those issues include misogyny, and racism, and other forms of ism. And so I think that we have to start by just saying, you know what, racism is not acceptable. And so there's no both sides to entertain. And so let's think about a better conversation we could have. And so that's another part of it. I just don't think there are two sides to a lot of these issues that people love to pretend there are two sides to.
0: Christina, would you like to?
2: well i I think that it's unfortunate that some of the topics that have come up tonight that people can't just sort of calmly talk to another person another woman and say or, or a man you should be able to debate these things sanely and reasonably and not get hysterical and that that happens in too many conversations now even someone you know can get you can be talking to someone now and I think this is what's driving women making women reluctant to identify as feminists They think it means that you have to just be just you know Think that there's this misogyny out there and your patriarchy and you're you know really pissed off if anybody questions it and you know and They're well, you know people are going to Keep their distance from you and the movement and there are just too many problems to solve if, if, if this were just a game then okay, everybody can go off and be whatever they want, but there are, the, the work of feminism is not over. Uh, the work of, you know, in, in basically improving our society and and the issues we've talked before about it, about racism and, and uh, poverty and so forth, these are urgent problems that we have to come together in a pluralistic society, and what... The beauty of pluralism means is that you're not always going to get your way, you're going to have to compromise. And I worry in the United States we're, we're not able to talk to each other. The two parties are now so polarized in the United States that a recent study suggested that people who are Democrats or people who are Republicans would accept their, you know, their child marrying you know, any religion or across ethnicities and races except not a member of the other party. Like, if you marry, that, that's, that will not happen. My parents were a little like that. <laughs> but, uh, if you uh, marry, th- so, but we've got to. we're in a democracy, a pluralistic democracy. We have to talk to each other, and we can't be so in- outraged and in any of it. So, I'm, maybe this will be a beginning, that we all found our way here. <laughs> thank you.
7: Um, hi, nice to meet you both, and thank you for coming to talk to us. Um, I have a question, um you work with the American Enterprise Institute and you've worked with a couple of controversial conservatives that have made a number of various comments. And I watch your uh, show, Factual Feminists, where you talk about what you believe is a feminist. Do you have a responsibility to um, correct the record when you think that some feminist activists some people in the movement make claims that you believe are false? Do you feel that responsibility also extends to... You work with in the American Enterprise Institute? I guess so. Who are you
2: talking about?
7: Well, just I haven't really thought of anyone in particular, but I'm thinking of like, people like Milo Yiannopoulos, who you've spoken with, who's made some claims. Who? Uh, Milo Yiannopoulos has made some claims.
2: Milo Yiannopoulos. He's not at the American Enterprise no, Institute. No, I'm not
7: suggesting. Just yes, the American Enterprise Institute, but I'm asking when you work with conservatives and other people like that, they make claims you don't agree with. Do you feel that you have the same responsibility to question that?
2: I, I would question it if, it, if they were—I don't know—anybody at my institute. I'd be upset if they made a mistake, but I would assume they'd correct it if it was pointed out to them.
8: An honor to address you both, um, Roxanne. I'm more familiar with your work, so I'm going to start by giving a little bit of an opening of your
2: text, Fat Feminist. So you open with a discussion on privilege,
8: which I think is really interesting and maybe not touched upon so much in tonight's debate. I think. Age itself, you have a varying level of privilege, so my question is to you,
6: you know, Roxanne, you in particular talk about affirmative action in your book. You say that privilege is something that you struggle with, and that you don't necessarily come to complete understanding of, and I feel I have very much the same, the same mindset, so my question is, could <coughs> the world be a better place, women from privileged backgrounds turn down any benefits arising from affirmative action programs?
1: Um... It depends because there are all kinds of privilege um, I do think that oftentimes it behooves those of us who have a great deal of privilege to share the ladders that we've climbed to achieve what we've achieved, and that means expanding opportunities and sharing our stages and platforms absolutely
2: i don't I do not find the language of privilege that helpful. I think you know like in in a society like ours you people are very complicated and someone that can appear to be the most privileged person in the world you don't know what if they have psychiatric disorders if they have a family history you don't know people are complicated stories and i just think we're best if we look at one another as individuals and especially on the interpersonal level and then in our universities and uh, where people are competing, I, I can see a case for affirmative action um, certainly for African Americans, or some have suggested make it not even because they're now, you know a lot of privileged African Americans. so maybe that that's too, or too limited. It should be maybe affirmative action based on um, income. So people that have overcome hardship, but they' you know, i could I, I could see something like that. But overall, I think we talk too much about that, and, and the, the worst way to attack uh, race and gender and you know various of these um, pathologies is to divide everybody rigidly and constantly be sort of drawing attention and making these divisions so salient about all the time. Um, it seemed, it worries me that we're kind of going back to a kind of tribalism, and where you judge people by immutable characters, characteristics, and not what's in their heart, not you know, uh, in their minds. So I would rather get back to that and away from everyone obsessing about who's more privileged and who isn't. And let's let's be human. Let's talk to each other.
8: I thought that- Within Europe stands saying that Christina Hoffmann was a white supremacist, or so you with know, white supremacy just because who she spoke to. Or also you mentioned the SPLC Law Center. Uh, but just recently they've been sued by Ajid Nawaz um, because they called him a right you wing know, anti-Islamic extremist. He clearly isn't, and he's given that explanation apology for that. So yes. there's this fear that uh, this kind of uh, this kind of rift uh, reacting is even seeping into uh, previously credible institutes like the Amnesty War Center. So I I, want, I just wonder, what you think about that, back to you, if you think that maybe you know we should be more open and talk to each other.
1: So you use some interesting language, like overreaction. But nobody's overreacting. Um,
8: yes. Okay.
1: Well, you know, but language matters. So, like, you're saying that, um, you know, that you're worried about overreaction. But language matters. And one of the ways in which language matters is that it's not acceptable to just be okay with everything. And when you are willing to associate, and this is generally, not any specific person, when you're willing to associate with people who are white supremacists, you're saying something about yourself. Because that's not a viewpoint that's worthy of respect or of acknowledgement, it truly is not. This idea that because they're charming or intelligent that they deserve time in, the, in my mind or they deserve time on any given stage or, you know, like they deserve to air their viewpoints. Like they can air their viewpoints, but I certainly don't have to bear witness to it. And I'm certainly allowed to judge it. And I'm certainly allowed to judge people who are more than willing to engage in those conversations because I'm not white. I'm black. And there are very real consequences for me for white supremacy. These are things that affect me materially. They are things that affect my brothers. They are things that would affect my children. And so we can't just sit and play about it. It's not an intellectual exercise because when I'm driving in my car and a police officer pulls me over, I have to keep my hands on the steering wheel so that he doesn't assume that I'm holding a gun. And this is a very real thing that I live with every single day. When I'm walking into my house late at night and the alarm goes off and the police come and they ask me, who does this house belong to when I own it, a a nice chat with a white supremacist isn't going to really get me out of that. And so these are not intellectual exercises for marginalized people. It's not something that I sit around worrying about all day, every day, like feeling sorry for myself, but it is something that I am willing to hold hardline judgments on. Absolutely.
2: But when you... But, to, but as a, a, a Jewish person, the idea of, of white supremacy is these marches that we saw is frightening. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly you find public discourse reached a point where they'll, just because you don't agree on certain issues, you have a more moderate position, you're called a white supremacist. The, the uh, Southern Poverty Law Center called Ion uh, uh, Hersia Ali, she was thought to be a, a, called islamophobic i mean she's this uh, heroic uh, somalian and now american uh, who fights for women's rights across the world and but she's very critical of radical islam and so they and now the southern, southern poverty law center they, the leaders have been pushed away have been accused of racism and sexism and the leadership has just imploded so that is a problematic organization and they had been sued. People told me that I should sue. They didn't call me a white supremacist. They said I was an enabler of male supremacy. Um, and they didn't really give any examples of how, but nevertheless, an enabler of male supremacy, male chauvinism. And uh, someone said, oh, you should sue. And I just thought that this, this is a once great organization that was fighting you know, dangerous elements on the right, and now, I don't know. Something happened, and uh, they are using their good name to go after people at the center uh, in, of political debate, in the, in the middle, and, and, and um, just creating this chaos. So it's a sad thing to see. What did he do wrong?
0: Go ahead, mate. Go ahead. Uh, and, and,
7: and pleasure. Um, Recently, in an interview with MIT AI, uh, Eric Weinstein, Weinstein. Stein, yes. he referred to social media as uh, a virus, as a parasite, and referring to Jonathan's height work recently, um, where the rates of young women committing suicide has increased by seventy percent, he directly attributes that to the influx of social media. How do we reconcile? that, how can we move towards addressing this issue?
1: I don't know that social media is a virus, but I do think that there are parts of social media where very virulent ideologies are allowed to flourish. And it's not even about partisan ideologies, bullying happens in these online spaces and all sorts of really abhorrent behavior and then people extrapolate it to be something that's also happening in the world at large. Sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't. But I think when it comes to young women and young men and how they're dealing with social media, I think a lot of it is that we need to encourage more media literacy, so we're talking to young people about what it means to engage online and what the repercussions of engaging online are. And parents also have to monitor. like check out what's happening. I think a lot of times people think that they can step away and let their children have freedom, but I I don't think that's the answer. I think that parents have to be really vigilant because children are exposed to all kinds of things on the Internet that they need help contextualizing. I would just say it's...
2: I think we're realizing that we are now in this world of social media, and in its early days, so we don't yet know the long-term psychological effects on us all. I mean, half the time I feel like I'm on Twitter so much it's addled my brain, and I took a weekend off, and it was restorative, (laughs) I'm going to try to do it more. But the power, just psychologically as human beings, um, you're on the net, and you sort of feel connected to everyone. Who, who's on there you feel like I and mean, then you, you kind of watch the reaction but if if it turns on you you know if suddenly you say something and then there's there's a mobbing and psychologically we're we're sort of wired to to be live in you know villages you know where you know about a hundred people and now we're the whole world is out there people reacting and the psychological impact and I'm an adult on it but I'm thinking of my ninth grade self or eighth grade self and in the the way that it can uh, you know leverage meanness and cruelty and all that, so we may look back with uh, horror at ha- this world that we are in now, where we don't have protections and and uh, warn uh, you know one another about what what it can be doing to us and uh, and socially and it brings out a lot of ugliness in people if. if Going after and shaming and mobbing, and I've tried to make a new rule to be as nice as I can on Twitter, and I, I'm trying not to like. If somebody says something, I used to like tweet above it and say, "Ha!" You know, I mean, never that mean, but I'm trying not to do that. And maybe we will evolve an uh, etiquette, and so people <laughs> will just, you know, be um, considered persona non grata if they are too vicious or uh, rude. And but we're not there yet. Long way away.
9: Um, hi, my question is primarily for you, Roxanne. Um, sorry, I'm a bit nervous. Um, I, sort of, I grew up in sort of a more rural, white, not white, but less diverse area of Australia. Um, and being the only person of color in predominantly white spaces, I've experienced sort of comments, sort of quite racially insensitive, comparing my hair to a gollywog, or sort of hosting African-themed parties or such. I've always had difficulty navigating these conversations and being the only person of colour in the room, the burden falls on falls on me to sort of speak up and sort of sort of point out sort of the racial reasons, sort of things being said, but how do I point that out when I know that I'm gonna be constantly shot down as my prior experience has indicated, indicated indicated, sorry, um that will happen.
1: Yeah, that's a good <laughs> question. You know, I'm from Omaha, Nebraska, which is a very rural place in the middle of the United States and we were the only black family in the neighborhood growing up. I've always been in predominantly white areas and attended predominantly white institutions and so I absolutely understand that feeling of having to be the spokesperson for your race and having people always expect that of you and having to do a level of education that is really unreasonable because you probably have a job. And then you have this secondary job of educating people and calling them out. And so one of the things that, especially as I've gotten older, what I tell people who ask me this question is that you really do have to pick your battles because you also have to preserve your sanity. And the reality is that you can't spend your whole life calling every single instance of frustration or microaggression out. Otherwise, that's all you're going to do. But you have to decide for yourself, what are the stands that I'm going to take? What are the things that I truly am not going to be able to tolerate? And for me, that's the metric I use for when I call people out. And I don't really take any pleasure in it because it's exhausting, and especially when it's my friends, my family, my community, where I have to call them out on this kind of thing. I don't want that responsibility. I don't want to be this person who has to point out to you that, no, you can't dress in blackface. Um, But you put me in that position, and so in addition to picking my battles, I also point out to them sort of like, what did you think was going to happen here? And try to turn it on them a little bit and make them have to engage and at least acknowledge the wrongdoing that they've done. Um, And the other thing is to just surround yourself with the right kinds of people which is not to say you're gonna find flawless people, that's never the goal, but you wanna make sure you have a support network that you can turn to when these things happen so that when you're just like, I cannot take this for one second longer, you have a a soft place to land.
9: Thank you very much. Thank
1: you.
0: Next question, please.
9: Hello, my question's for Christine. Two questions. The first is, please stop using the word hysterical. Recently, I've heard you talk a lot about the problem of modern feminism maligning men and casting women as victims. You're speaking tonight in a country where at least one woman one woman is killed a week by her male partner or former partner. I just wonder how you reconcile that with your framework.
2: Okay. I'm going to try not to get hysterical, Um, it's a descriptive word, you know, there's, when people, when there, there are, for example, if you have a, if you live in a free society, you live in a society where women have, uh, are empowered and have opportunity, there's never, there's no place in the world that's 100% safe, and there are always dangers, the best we can do is limit them, and, we're doing a, a very good job. In, in a city like Sydney, it appears to me you're doing a very good job. Can we eliminate all evil? No, but you have to at least be able to make a comparison and not make like the, the perfect the enemy of the good. This is a very good society uh, with respect to women. And I don't know what else to tell you. It, it, when I see people in the United States, and I don't know if this happens here, where they they talk about American society as if women are living in a state of siege and men are waging war. There's, what war? It's, it's, it's a complicated world. There are sociopaths, and mostly they kill men. I don't know about Australia, it's mostly men. Men who are murdered, violent crime violent criminals kill uh, they they kill women but they kill men it's about sociopaths if they're murdering uh, someone who murders is uh, there's a uh, this uh, no it's not an anecdote but it's not it's not no, the norm and the, they don't implicate the average man in the crimes of a minority of, of violent sociopaths, don't do that. And this is what I see happening, and you, you have so many good men in this society, and yet there's, and then you ask me, what? what? I'm getting hysterical, okay. <laughs> Look, whatever the numbers are, they are, they do matter, they do matter. And then we have to figure out what can we do about it. And that means coming together and trial and error, and try to diminish. Well, I'm, do you know that, what is the murder rate in this country? How many people are dying of murder? In the United States, we've taken, it, the thing to know about the United States is that in the past 20 years, violent crime, including rape, including wife abuse, and uh, even uh, uh, violence against children, it's gone down. It's gone down. We're doing something right, and we should continue that. So, but and and not pre- and and not suggest that the United States is comparable to countries where women don't have rights.
3: Hi. Um
9: I was really intrigued by Christine's comment that uh, capitalism is economic freedom. Um, yeah. <laughs> I just want to ask, like, do you think that late capitalism is antithetical to the causes of feminism? And Dr. Gay, I'd be really interested in hearing your thoughts about how you can live as a feminist and still participate in the structures of late capitalism as we all do. Yeah.
1: Um... You know, that's a really good question. And the reality, it's hard because money is great. It is. And frankly, the tax man doesn't care about feminism and a resistance to late capitalism. And so I just try to make the most ethical choices that I can with my money at all times. I do have a staff at this point in my career and I pay them ethically. I give them benefits and things like that so that I make sure that I am... Being a, ca- I am a capitalist, and I know that's one of the primary critiques against me, and I think it's a fair critique, absolutely. Um, but I just try to do it as ethically as possible.
2: Well, I will defend you being a capitalist because, uh, first of all, capitalism freed women. Uh, it, it was, it,
1: it was. Come on, it was in it, where you have it's, you it have freed white have. women. Capitalism made enslaved black women. Black women were considered.
2: Uh, excuse me. Pre-capitalist societies were good at oppression and S- slavery was 150,
1: time. 200 years ago. That's not pre-capitalist. That's no, capitalist. Uh, 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 uh,
2: there have been slaves since the beginning of time. There have been there's been slavery and capitalism and bourgeois liberal society. What is notable about it is that it began the process to eliminate slavery and to eliminate gender segregation so uh, it provided the prosperity to be a foundation for human emancipation and and how you don't appreciate that i mean what what are you comparing it with?
1: Capitalism was the very thing that kept slavery going as long as it did because people were unwilling to pick their own
2: country. There's slavery in the world today.
1: There's slavery. And in- capitalism, capitalism is responsible capitalism. for that as well.
2: No. All right. I mean, all right. I don't know.
0: Okay. Wait, would...
2: and show, so, uh, will you show me a country where they are not, where they what country, Venezuela? Is it Cuba? Where where is a successful society outside the market system? It's not perfect, but the free market system, as they say, is uh, the worst of all systems, except for all the rest.
0: Mm. I want to say thank you very much for attending tonight, and thank you so very much for coming today. Please give a big warm thank you to our panelists. Thank you.